Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to Intentional Guy. I am stoked about today's uh, podcast just simply because I know there's a lot of us who we have a story. We have a story of maybe addictions or other things in our life. And I believe today will be a great uh, time for you to, especially if you're seeking um, for restoration and freedom from that, uh, and maybe the guilt and shame that comes along with it. So today, I have a special guest with me, uh, Ed Treat. He is um, Center of Addiction and Faith, if I'm correct, counseling. Do you, and um, I'm glad that you're here with us today, Ed, because this is something that a lot of times we as a church, we don't talk about. We don't talk about addictions and other things out there. And we also have a way of labeling people. I don't really like, I, I'd rather God label me than somebody else uh, yeah. label me, you know, but the truth of the matter is um, we, we all have a story, right? Sometimes it, it's not pretty. Sometimes it's not look great, but the nice thing about it is uh, what the enemy met for evil, God means for good. And God can take our story and take, make beauty out of ashes. Yeah. You know, and I'm seeing that in my own life. So today, um, Ed, I thank you for coming on here. And I just kind of want to hand it over to you. I ask you if you'd share a little bit of your story with us today. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. Thanks for having me on. I'm honored. I loved your graphic uh, at the beginning of the show. That's good. Uh, I don't know if you did that, but uh, pretty cool. Um, thank you. I uh, I grew up in a in a military family. My dad was just a really angry man he was uh he was um <clears throat> he had a tough childhood and life and and uh, he got beaten a lot when he was growing up and so that's all he knew and so he did that with us we had six boys and two girls a catholic family and um so dad would come home from military and um we never knew what was going to come through the door he could come in uh happy and and charming or he would be swinging a belt and more often than not it was swinging a belt because military is kind of a rough environment right yeah so he uh we so i grew up in that that constant fear of impending doom you know there was this sense that uh that i was going to get in trouble for something and i never knew what it would be you know there was never clear rules around that which is it had to do with whether he was angry or not oh wow so he'd take it out on us and i was far down the pecking order so there was six boys two girls in my family and so um the way that got played out was is that he was hardest on the older ones and they would pass it down to us hmm. and there was a pecking order and the way my siblings would take it out on each other is uh through sarcasm and shame guilt and humiliation you know that we would just find flaws in each other and and um pick on each other my mom insisted we be nice but we found mean ways to be nice um and so there was a lot of teasing a lot of uh shaming and and uh so I grew up in kind of a soup of fear and, and shame, guilt, all of that. And uh, when I was 13, 14 years old, uh, I had my first drink of alcohol. And uh, I can't even tell you how wonderful it was. It was just the best thing I'd ever experienced. It just warmed me from the inside out. And um, I didn't know that feeling existed. And hmm. uh, I was set free from all that shame, fear, and guilt, and all that stuff. It was just, it, it just fixed, it fixed all my problems. And so I didn't set out to be an addict or uh, an alcoholic. Uh, I just, I just knew that alcohol fixed me, and if it was around, I wanted some. And I also made sure I was around it if, if it was possible. 
so I, uh, I started using drugs. I started drinking. I went to all the parties. I held parties. Um, by the time I got to high school, I was that kid that uh, parents didn't want you hanging out with. Uh, I ran wild and I had long hair and, and uh, so I'm glad, you know, I shaded, had those um, glasses that turned dark in the light and, right. and transitions. And, and so I always had looked like sunglasses on and I had um, hippie shirts and I was stoned all the time. Uh, I had drugs or I knew where to get them. And uh, my, my nickname in high school was Woodstock. Oh, yeah. So the uh, yeah, party guy. And so I barely made it through high school. I moved to Maui. I moved to uh, San Diego. Um, and wherever I moved to, I would create a mess um, because I was just re- really irresponsible and just using drugs and partying as much as uh, I could afford to. And um, so I would make a mess of my life and it would get so bad that the, my best option was just to move, to run away. And so we call that a geographical move. Uh, geographical solution to life's problems. When things get bad, you just leave and start over somewhere else. And I just make a mess in the next place, uh, San Diego. And then I was in Phoenix. And uh, throughout those years, there were many times that I would hit bottom and just feel really a sense of desperation, like something was really wrong and I needed to fix it. And I would think, what do I do? Uh, I would always say, I would always think I should go to church. And I would go to church sit in the back, sit through a service. And then I would walk out going, well, that's not it. Maybe it's a different church and I would try a different church or I would just give up, but I never found what I was looking for. I never found any kind of connection or I felt like that was a deep, kind of a place where I belonged. Um, in fact, I didn't feel any sense of belonging there at all. Wow. And so, um, so that uh, my life kind of went on that way. Uh, didn't go anywhere for, for years until age 27. Um, I, my brother had gone off to treatment and uh, he took my mom to his treatment center for family, uh, you know, family. Uh, they try to educate the family. And so my mom got an education. She learned about addiction, alcoholism. And so she began to confront me and ask me how my drinking was all the time. I hated that question. I knew something was wrong with me. I knew that there was something seriously wrong with me. And, um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't think it was drugs and alcohol. In fact, I was sure it wasn't. I thought if I could fix whatever's wrong with me, then I would drink and use normally. I just didn't want it to be that because that was the thing that, that worked for me. It was my friend. Right. Um, I mean, you can take, you can go to counseling, you can take antidepressants. They may or may not work. They take a long time or they may not work that well, but opioids work really quickly Mm. and opioids actually, um, model the feeling of love. I mean, that that's the sensation you get from opioids is very similar to the feeling of being in love and who doesn't want to feel love. Right. Um, and so that's why it's so highly addictive and alcohol does that too. And so in this instant, you know, if I have a drink, I'll be, I'll feel better in about 20 minutes, you know? So it's, it's uh, fast acting and effective. Um, mm. but it, but it over time <laughs> will take its toll and that's what it had done to me. So by the time I was 27, uh, I phoned home and I asked for help and my mom, um, said, well, we'll come and get you. And, um, and then she went to, a uh, an Al-Anon meeting and they said, no, no, don't go get them, find them a treatment center. And so she called me back the next day and said, um, we're not going to rescue you. We're going to, we've got a treatment center for you. So I went in and, uh, 
I didn't, I, even to the day I went into treatment, I didn't think this was my problem. I thought I still had something else wrong with me, uh, but I was just to the point where I was willing to try it. And uh, immediately the lights went on. I, w- I read the big book and I watched some videotapes and I went, oh my gosh, this explains everything. This, this, is, this is my problem. And uh, ever since then, that was 1986, I've, I've been free. And, um, but it was also the beginning of my journey to find uh, my life again, because I'd gotten so far away from who I was. Um, when I was younger, they used to say, if you drink drugs, use an alcohol, if you drink drugs, if you drink and use drugs, um, it'll stunt your growth. We used to laugh at that. We thought it was a joke. But what I realized was I was 27 years old and I had stopped growing emotionally when I started uh-huh. using and drinking. So here I was a 27 year old man with the emotions of a 13 year old. And so I had to go. So when we talk about recovery, we're talking about uh, learning how to grow up and be a human being and learning how to deal with your emotions and not let uh, your emotions uh, overwhelm you. And, and uh, they're, it's really hard to do, to stand in the face of life and life's demands and, and not want to run away. Because drugs mm-hmm. is really a way of, of running away. You know, it's just a way of hiding out. And so I started the long, hard process of recovery and um, uh, slowly started to get my life back. I went back to college, um, got a degree and went off to a seminary. And in my recovery years, the years that I'm getting my life back in order, there were many times that I thought to myself, um, I want to deepen my spirituality because 12-step programs really essentially are about spirituality. Um, I mean, the language is, is about getting right with God and, and praying and, and prayer and meditation and, and carrying the message to others who still suffer. And so it's, it's really the, the 12 steps are really a liturgy for the Christian life. You know, trusting God entirely, complete surrender, uh, examining your life, um, confessing your, your sins, making amends to other people, uh, cleaning up your past. Uh, deepening your spirituality and then going out to help others. I mean, that's that's yeah. the that's the liturgy of the Christian life is is what we're called to to do. And so, uh, but I I would go to twelve step meetings, and um, I've always been. Uh, my brother got me to my first twelve step meeting, and I remember being terrified because I was afraid I'd see somebody I knew, and I was worried that you know they would think I was one of you know that I belong there. Right. And because, uh, you know, it's pretty humiliating. It's there's a lot of stigma. And uh, and so w- w- I was terrified. And then I realized they were going to ha- ask me to share. And that scared me even more because I thought, I, I don't know how to talk. I can't talk like these people are talking. I was uh, really amazed by what I was hearing. I mean, these were some of the most beat up, uh, hurting looking people. I, you know, they just look like it is. You know, we often jokingly say 12-step meetings are a lot like the Star Wars bar. You remember with all the, the creatures? <laughs> yeah. So we jokingly say that, but uh, here they were sharing one at a time, and they were um, they were funny. They were charming. Uh, they were, um, you know, they spoke. They just spoke from their hearts, and I just thought, how are they doing that? That's just amazing to me. I would love to be able to do that. Uh, but I was so buried under my uh, masks that I had been wearing for so many years that I had no idea how to be myself. And I think I was terrified that if anybody saw the real me, it would, they would be horrified. Yeah. So I was so deep into hiding that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't be myself. I didn't know how to do that, but I was really drawn to it. I'll tell you. 
And then, uh, so I made 12 step meetings, my home got very involved. Um, and then I, I would, I would get to the point where I want to deepen my spirituality. And so I would think, well, where do you, where do you go to get closer with God? Well, you go to church, right? So I would, um, try churches and I would church hop and, uh, I church hopped like I bar hopped. Mm. Um, I'd try different ones and I would leave every, every one of them. I would leave going, no, that's not it. I mean, there's nothing here that connects with me and with what I'm going through in life. And my perception was, is that church is a place you go to, 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 uh, when everything's going well. I mean, when you're, when you got your, you know, what I saw were people that had their life together and many of them did. I don't know that all of them did, but I just uh, didn't fit in. I didn't, I didn't, I, I was a broken human being and these people mm -hmm. just seemed like they were all together. So I just never could find a connection. I finally gave up and, uh, decided that, you know, 12 step groups were going to be my church, even though I didn't really feel like it was enough. There was not enough theology there that satisfied me, but, um, so, uh, trying to edit myself because you don't want to hear every detail, but, um, there was uh, during my spring break um, at college, a friend from the program, a, another alcoholic, and I said, let's go find God in the wilderness. And so we got out a map of the state of Washington, which is where I, which is where my dad retired to. And I kind of grew up there. Right. Um, we got out a map of the state of Washington and uh, we said, where would we find God? And so we saw this big green section of the map. It was the North Cascades National Park. And we thought there's no roads going in there. And it's like, that's where God is, is in the middle of, in the middle of the wilderness. So we said, how do we get in there? And the best way to get in there was to get on a boat in the town of Chelan, Washington. And it takes you three hours up this really long skinny lake and drops you off. It's Tahikin, small town. That's really nothing more than a lodge. It's all, it's, there's a fishing lodge and a restaurant. And it's in the middle of nowhere. And they drop you off and pick you up three days later. So we said, that's where we're going to go find God. So we get on this boat and we're chugging up the lake. And then the boat stops and picks up about 50 people. And we were like, oh, my God, we didn't want all these people going there. You know, how are we going to find God if there's other people around? We need wilderness um, and isolation. But so these people get on and I'm talking to them. And I said, are you guys going to Stahican? And they said, no. We're going to a place called Holden Village. And I was like, what's Holden Village? And they said, well, it's a Lutheran camp up in the mountains. Uh, it's an old mining camp that's been converted into an adult retreat center. And my first thought was, oh, great. I'm on a boatload of happy Christians, right? And uh, it wasn't until later that I found out that Lutherans really aren't all that happy. <laughs> they, they're not um, very expressive in their faith. Um, so one of them said, well, show them the flyer. One lady pulled out of her purse, this crinkled up flyer, and she opened it up. And they were going up to Holden Village for a 12-step weekend workshop. Huh. And so I'm like, I'm trying to find, uh, get as far from civilization as possible. And I'm on a boatload of people going for a 12-step work. They used to all people in recovery. And they're going to this church camp to talk about recovery. And I just thought, you know, we went to find God in the wilderness and, you know, it's funny how God works, isn't it? Isn't it? So we decided to go with them. We went to Holden Village. It's a Lutheran camp, and it's uh, just an am amazing place. It's 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 so remote that you have to take the boat up the lake. That's the only way there. And then you get on this old rickety school bus, and it takes you up switchbacks and 12 miles back into the Cascade Mountains. And here's this little town. Uh, it used to be a mining 
it used to be a mining town and families would live there and they would, it was a copper mine and they sold it after it went out of business, they sold it to the church and they operated it as an adult retreat center. And here I was in a church and talking about the 12 steps. It was like, wow, it's like coming home. Um, I found my home I be, and I thought these Lutherans are okay. What I really loved was that they had a theology of uh, what's called a theology of the cross, which means that God meets us in those hard, dark, scary places. Mm. And, um, and, um, and, it, and w- the, the expectation is, is that God, you know, God, life is hard and, and there's, we go through some really awful things, but God is there in the midst of all the, the things we struggle with. So we don't have to pretend like um, because we believe in Jesus, we can sail off and live happily ever after. Because we live in Jesus, we can go through really hard and dark places um, with confidence and, and assurance. And to me, that felt a little more genuine uh, mm-hmm. theologically. Uh, that I didn't have to pretend to be this happy Christian and say, praise yep. the Lord at the end of every sentence. Right? Yep. So uh, I, I fell in love with the Lutherans. I volunteered at that camp. I got involved. I was their, their uh, bus driver and their, their uh, sound audio visual guy. And then uh, that summer I met my wife. She was there from Minneapolis visiting and she, uh, she and I fell in love and we ended up getting married. And, um, decided to go to seminary and uh, went to Lutheran seminary uh, to deepen my understanding of God, to know the Bible better and to, to grow in my spirituality. And about three months into seminary, I came home to my wife and I said, I've made a huge mistake. I said, the Lutheran church is not like Holden village at all. I said, it's just like every other church. They're not talking about any of this and they don't want to talk about it. Um, and I was just really disappointed. And they're not talking about spirituality. It's just really, it's just all academic. It's just all book stuff. It's all head stuff. Right. And um, so I was just really, really bothered by that. Um, and I was going through a, a crisis of whether I should stay or not. Um, but then I heard there were these pastors getting together in Chicago, and they were Lutheran pastors, and they were alcoholics. And so they were meeting. And I thought, I got to go there. And so I drove to Chicago and came into this meeting and here these guys were, and they were telling their first step stories about, you know, how they drank and ended up in the gutter. And I was like, these are my people. <laughs> they know, they know how to be broken and they know how to be real. And, and anyway, so it was really exciting for me. And I felt renewed in my call to be a pastor. And so uh, we formed a group called the fellowship of recovering Lutheran clergy. And back in 1990, when that group formed, pastors were being, if you had this problem, if you had the problem of addiction and you were a pastor, that was it. You were done. Yes. Um, you, you were, you were, you know, we say, taken behind the barn and shot <laughs> or thrown to the curb, right? Right. And so we, uh, we said, wait a minute, this is a health issue. Why are, we, why are we destroying people's lives because they have a health issue? That, you know, pilots, doctors, nurses all have organizations that help them stay in their, in their careers, we should be doing the same thing. So we became a group to advocate for pastors to stay in recovery. And so that group uh, formed 30 years ago, and I've been the director of it for the last 18 years. And we do a variety of things. We, we've written a policy for helping pastors stay in the ministry if they become addicted. Um, and we have written a book that, t- that tells our stories. We do an annual conference and a retreat. Um, 
so I've been doing that for for a while. It's a small shoestring operation, but um, we're there for for those people that most need the help and support. We have a 12-step meeting that meets online every week. Pastors from all over the country and Canada come and and find support there. And what uh, what addictions do you guys deal with? Oh, everything. Um, we've got um, alcohol, drugs, uh, eating disorders, workaholism, um, codependency. Uh, sex addiction, which is really hard for a pastor. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's one that doesn't find much acceptance in the culture. If you're a pastor and you have a sex addiction, that's a, ooh, not not good. And restoration is, is almost <sighs> impossible to find from that. Right, right. You just can't. I mean, you can come out as an alcoholic these days, and it's not that big of a deal. But you can't come out as a sex addict because there's so much shame and and stigma mm-hmm. attached to that. And the crazy part is, is sex addiction is rampant. I mean. Oh, it's Ever since I mean, the internet came out, it has exploded. Oh gosh, and 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 uh, I mean, we're watching Viagra commercials in in regular daytime TV. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. how crazy is that? I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it's just like we're we're obsessed with with uh, sex in this country. Anyway, yeah. well, so uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I love that that part that you're not just a drug addiction, but you're you're looking at all these different addictions because you know part of my story was a sexual addiction and coming from where I came from, I, I, I didn't know where to turn. And I turned, I did turn to a group that I thought would be great. And when I got in there, I found out how condemning and legalistic they were that drew me even further into my addiction, you know? And so uh, I can, you know, I know how hard it is as a minister who falls into an addiction and then feels so alone because the minister is always helping the other people. But then when the minister needs help, where does he go? Right. You know, so I commend this ministry because it's, it's so needed. They need a place where they don't feel like their world has just completely gone and find hope. Well, it is a career that has a high incidence of addiction and uh, that's not been acknowledged, but by the nature of it, it is a, uh, the people that go into the ministry, typically just because you want to go in the ministry, usually is an indication that you've got something wrong that you're trying to fix. <laughs> yeah. And so, you you know, we think, you know, if we go and help others with problems, that ours will get fixed, but it doesn't quite work that way. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. So I was doing the FRLC stuff uh, until about 2017 when the opioid crisis really began to blow up. And I went to an event at University of Minnesota and I heard Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, to speak about uh, how everything they're doing is making the problem worse. She said, "We're, you know, what we can do is change the laws, and we can make it harder for people to get opioids. But that just means now they're going to the street and they're getting opioids in in other ways. And our uh, opioids are poisoned. I mean, you don't know if you're uh, on the street, you don't know if you're getting opioids or or fentanyl." And so that's why so many people are, you know, it's actually getting worse. And so she said, we need everyone to do something. We're, we're, we're running out of ideas. And so I had this epiphany and I thought, I know that my, my, I know that seminary doesn't teach about addiction. And I know that uh, my clergy, my fellow clergy have no, no clue about the addictive process and how it works. And you, and you said a minute ago about how you appreciate that it's about all these different addictions because uh, my my uh, what I what I insist is that um, 
or what I teach and believe is that we all have addiction to some degree. I mean, we're, we're just mm-hmm. by human nature. It's part of who we are. It's, you know, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate the thing that they weren't supposed to do, uh, ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, um, they immediately became ashamed and hid themselves. Right. And so um, in my faith tradition, at the beginning of worship service, we have this corporate f- confession that we say, and we say we stand up together and say the words, we confess we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. And so we're essentially saying, God, we keep saying and doing and thinking things that we don't want to, but we can't stop. And that's a statement of addiction right there. And so we're all addicted to some degree. It's just that for some people, it's worse. Right. And I would suggest and I would put forth that uh, underneath every addiction, there is unresolved pain. Yeah. Because, you know, we think of addicts and people using uh, as bad people doing a bad thing. But it's really hurting people trying to relieve pain. And so whether it's food, whether it's work, whether it's exercise, whether it's pornography, whether it's alcohol or opioids, it's, it's you're trying to medicate, you're medicating pain. And uh, <clears throat> well, and I like and what so, you said earlier, you said that drugs and, and that's how pornography and stuff was for me was it produced a false sense of love. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and belonging or I, I you know, I don't know. Yeah. But, how it works in our mind completely, but yeah, it feels like it's meeting a need that it's really creating, making worse. Yeah. Well, and you get that huge endorphin rush, you know, with an orgasm, that's pretty, that's yep. pretty awesome. You know, it's hard not to want to do that. <laughs> right. As much as you're capable of it. Um, it's our, you know, part of our human design. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so I just said we need to educate clergy and faith communities to do a better job because I had this vision that there's a church on every street corner in this country, and if they all began to learn about this and do some things to try to help people like me who come in looking for help can walk away with a brochure or or at least something to help them um, learn about what they're dealing with, and so I felt like we need to get churches involved, and yeah. so. This is when we started the Center of Addiction and Faith. Uh, we don't do counseling. Um, we, um, we've, well, how the, the Center of Addiction and Faith got started was we held a conference. Basically, we just, we, we had no plans to start a business or any, or, or a new ministry. We just wanted to hold a conference, bring together the brightest minds around the science and, and the study of addiction and educate our fellow clergy. And so we put on this conference and we thought, Maybe we'd get 30, 40 local pastors to come if we were lucky. By the time we got done promoting it and putting it on, we had to cut off registration at 200. Mm. And we had uh, pastors from 34 different states, one from Canada. We had, uh, they represented 17 different denominations. And so we were like, wow, we've really hit on something here. There's, yes. there's a lot of interest. So we did it again in 2019. We had the similar result. We had a huge turnout. We had people from all over the country come. We had um, lots of denominations represented. So after that, all my colleagues and people in my life began to say, you need to make this into a ministry of some kind. And so I said, yeah, I know, but I have a job. I was a senior pastor of a large church. <laughs> and I thought, I can't do both of these things. They're just too, too much. And, uh, but I felt the calling. And so I tried to, I tried to uh, put together a ministry 
And uh, I did that for about a year and a half before I realized it wasn't, I couldn't do both because my church required attention. Right. And so uh, I, I, I kept saying, God, you know, provide the resources I need so I can go do this other thing. And what I heard back from God was, um, no, go do the other thing. We'll figure out the resources later. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love that answer? Yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I took a step of faith. I resigned from my call and uh, about two years ago and uh, formed a 501c3 called the Center of Addiction and Faith. And our mission is to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Wow. And so we're a prophetic voice uh, nationwide. And what we're trying to do is tell faith communities they have an obligation to deal with this. Uh, people are dying. Huge numbers of people, young people are dying, more than COVID. And yet, the res- where's the response? Um, uh, and we also know a lot about addiction now. There's incredible science. And yet, we're still functioning with information from 50 years ago. I mean, we still yeah. treat it as though it's a, a moral failing when it's really a health problem. Yeah. And there's some solutions. And so anyway, we, we need to, uh, we have a retired um, pediatrician on our board and he is, um, he's saying me- doctors aren't educated either. They get nothing on addiction, maybe a class somewhere along the way, but they still think of uh, people coming in looking for drugs as dirty addicts instead of people who have a health issue, yep. which is what they should be evaluated. If they're coming in drug seeking, they shouldn't be shooed out the door. They should be evaluated and sent off for, for help. Yep. Anyway, so um, we have a lot of work to do. So, you know, we do our annual conference. Uh, we started doing monthly webinars where we, like you do, host uh, people from all over the country and people working in this field that know a lot and, and have these really great uh, webinars. And after the webinars, we have these great conversations. We have a discussion group. We get... Uh, 200 to 300 people coming to our webinars every month. And uh, yeah, it's really, it's really been wonderful. Uh, I do a podcast where I interview pastors who tell their story Mm -hmm. um, called um, my story of addiction and grace. And you can find it on your Spotify or whatever, whatever music uh, program you have access to. And we'll put it in our um, description. Okay. Good. People can find that. Yeah, they're inspirational. You hear about what it's like for a pastor who ends up, you know, with a serious drinking problem. We've got one story about a bishop who just got elected to be bishop, and uh, two weeks into his his new job as bishop, uh, was confronted by his staff that he did an intervention. He went off to treatment, and he mm. came back and continued to serve as bishop, and and uh, tells an amazing story of his recovery. But yeah, and you know, the unfortunate thing. So my my group of churches that I come from, uh, they would have been thrown away. That yeah. that minister would have been confronted. Yes. And um, that was what I grew up. I remember when there was a pastor who had had an affair. Um, my mm. dad got a phone call from another pastor. And I, as any good teenager did or young person did, I was eavesdropping on the phone and I heard him nice. say, bless God, another bad pastor gone. Mm. And that put me into hiding uh, because mm. what my family didn't know was I had been sexually abused mm. and I didn't feel like I could go to anyone. And therefore that's what 
you know, unre I, I learned as an adult on, you know, unresolved trauma yeah. <laughs> needs to be dealt with. Yeah. And I didn't know why I did the things I did until I got into counseling and, and all that other stuff, you know, but, uh, you know, that's one of the issues is we, as ministers, you know, there's a big fear of being thrown away. And then, you know, they're looking at their livelihood and their yeah, yeah. everything else going on. There's all these fears associated with. Yeah. And I feel like the church just sticks our heads in the ground. And we talk about saved by grace a lot, but we yeah. really are talking about on a performance-based faith yep. more than we are anything else. And we, we don't allow that our ministers are humans yep. as well, capable of anything anybody else is capable Probably of. Probably more so because of the pressure they're under to be perfect. Yep. And when you repress, you know, your, your human frailties, um, they come out somehow. That's yep. why... You know, sometimes you pe see people railing against something like like um, like sexuality. It turns out they've got this secret sex life. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, no, you're exactly uh, right. Yeah. You know, so. And it's I amazing how those um, those unresolved uh, traumas and those unresolved uh, issues will drive your life, um, mm -hmm. and you don't even know that's what's doing it. But but those things that they they have they take on a life of themselves, and they they can really um, create trouble for you they can and like you said yeah. in your early days you were going to churches looking for a place to belong and i believe a lot of there's you know when i was in the midst of mine i could not find i there was no safe place that i right. knew of that i could go to yeah. and seek help there's there what it did not exist yeah you know and then once I finally got restoration, it took me 15 years. It was been a 15 year journey for me to find it because I had to go outside of the circle that I was from and go to a totally different state. And, and, you know, yeah. I see God all along the way where he was, yeah, but right. you know, he had to remove me yeah. to show me who he was and, and thank God he he's faithful. He brought the right people into my life that helped me find restoration and all that, you know, but now today I'm, I'm one of those person. I, I love what you're doing because had I, had I known about your organization had had that available to me during that time, how much hardship or how far, I, I don't even know how long would yeah. it take to me, right, you right. know, to find that hope. Yep. yep. Yeah. I mean, that's what we want to do is, is start catching those people before they kill themselves or, or, you know, they don't have to go as far as they do. Actually, yes. they're finding that prevention is pretty, pretty effective. Um, um, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of things we can do that are preventative. But education for one. I mean, if right. we understood the addictive process and, and understood the science behind it, um, that would, that helps people realize they're having a problem way before. I mean, like, like in my case, I thought if something was wrong with me, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And then when I got the education, it was like, oh, my gosh, this explains it. Yeah. Well, they've, the, the problem is, is that we don't get that education until we land in treatment. I mean, it's way, it's way late. And yeah. so if that treatment happens earlier in life, um, the time between you having a problem and getting help gets shorter. Yeah. And uh, it's effective. It works.
and I came from an air uh, from a group that you, if you stick your hand in the sand, stick your head in the sand, then you know it'll eventually go away. Just trust God. Just trust God. You know. And, yes, that's right. And there, but there, you know, I needed some people would to be Jesus with skin on and love me yeah, yeah. in the midst of this, and and yeah, but I didn't know where that existed. Yeah. Uh, that level well you know that's funny because um your religion can even become part of your denial system i mean that was yeah. true for me because of what i believed i i really believed in god i told you that my brother took me to my first AA meeting and i remember thinking uh it's too bad these people don't know the lord like i do <laughs> i i thought i don't need this because i have jesus and and somehow that you know knowing jesus was going to fix all my problems well, Jesus was bringing me to the place I needed help. I didn't want it. You know, mm -hmm. what I wanted was a, I wanted a, a lightning bolt to, you know, strike yes. me and fix me. You know, I wanted, yes. I didn't want to have to go through 12 step group for crying out loud. I, but it turns I, out I, it was the best thing I could have wanted. I, I, better than I could have hoped for because the Tulsa Fellowship is phenomenal. I mean, the people uh, open, they're the most genuine people in the world and I get to be one of them. The, the best thing and the worst thing that I ever did was with the sexaholics anonymous mm. and i remember the shame and guilt on me but as i heard their stories because they did a new newcomers meeting that night when yeah. i was there and they shared their stories so for people who don't know what that's like and they went around and told their stories as they told their stories i i saw me in each of their story yeah yeah. And then I didn't feel so alone, yeah. but I remember when I would say, Hey, I'm Mike, I'm a sexaholic. How hard those words were yeah, it is. to it's come hard. out. But I was so used to what is this my identity, you know? Yeah. And, um, but me, I was, you know, when I first went, I'm around, I don't need to go around all these perverts and all this stuff. That's not yeah, me. Yeah. Right, right. And then when I got in there, I felt I did belong, Yeah. you know, and those, what yeah. great men in the community, these guys were yeah. because yeah. they were doctors and lawyers yeah. Yeah. and every yeah. aspect of life. But man, how for several years, these men poured into me became my sponsor yeah and, and helped me you know i i'll, yeah. I'll never yeah it's, it's them for it's, what they did you know it's it's what i think jesus intended for um the church yeah and it's really unfortunate the church of all places is the last place people want to share their hurts and the church was the last place i wanted anyone know i was a part of sexaholic right oh god yeah i mean i when i was Doing my internship as a you know learning pastor, I heard I heard that one of our ushers was a member of Al-Anon. So I went over to him. I said, "Hey, I'm a friend of Bill W's, which is code for I'm an alcoholic." And he said, "Oh, that's awesome." And so we started talking. We had this instant connection, which you know recovering people do. And so we had this great conversation. And then I said, "Hey, would you ever share your story like it during Lent? Um, maybe give a testimony." And he looked horrified. He said, I would never share that part of my life at church. And I just thought, what is wrong with the church that people can't hurt, share their hurts? Uh, yeah. But it dawned on me, um, 
during seminary, I had an insight into maybe why the church is not a place for broken people. Um, it happened during a, a class on Christian education. We were learning how to teach the faith. And this teacher was teaching on the parables, and he's teaching how to teach the parables. And he was talking about the parable of the prodigal son. And I was going, oh, that's, I love that story. That's my story. You know, be, you know the, the, the kid who goes off and wastes his life yeah. with loose living and then is welcome back. I thought, that's my story. And then the teacher says, but the story isn't about the, the son who goes off and gets forgiven. The story is about the older brother who won't accept him back. And Jesus was telling that story to hold up a mirror to the Pharisees and saying, see what you're like. I'm trying to help these poor people that are broken and, and, and want be, to get right with God. And you're just stonewalling them and not letting them in. And so I, when I heard that, I thought, oh, my gosh, that's huge. That's a big deal. And I, I raised my hand and I said, how many in this class relate to the younger brother and how many relate to the older brother? And there was only two of us in the class that related to the younger brother, the rest of the class. These were all pastors waiting, oh, wow. learning to be pastors. And I thought, well, of course the church is that way then. I mean, if they all relate to the older brother, that means they're like the older brother. Um, they've done everything right their whole lives. They've lived by the rules. They've, uh, they've, you know, they've earned their place, you know, in, in dad's good, good, um, in dad's good sight. And so they're just nothing but bitter about this son who comes in and, and just gets everything forgiven. It's not fair. And I understand that. It isn't fair. It isn't fair, this, this older brother's uh, having to deal with. So I get it. But I thought the church is made up of older brother types. Yep. So no wonder broken people like us don't feel welcome there. Because <laughs> exactly. we're really not. I wrote a book two years ago on my life, uh, my story, and I didn't want to write it. And um, I was like, and I didn't intend to write it. I just, but then here I did write a book about my life. And I was like, God, I, you know, the biggest fear that I had was being exposed. And God said, well, then we're going to take care of that. And I'm going to control the narrative of it. It's so my book is called expose. Um, and it, but that was my biggest fear was I didn't want anyone to know, but let me tell you once I, I sent that off. That's when freedom came. Yeah. Because I was, God put light on my story and now I could own my story and I don't hide from my story anymore. Yeah. I, sh I, I share my story because God's not ashamed of me. Yeah. That's and, right. And, but, you know, I get to live that. Yeah. And I, I, so, you know, I, well, isn't I, that the whole, um, I mean, that's the whole Genesis story again. It's just like we're, everybody's, living in in hiding yes. to some degree yes. I mean, even the older brother is, is 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 thinking and saying and doing things he's not proud of and he doesn't want anybody to know so yeah. we're all in hiding to some degree and the nice thing about you and i is is that we've had this problem that forced us to come out of hiding and we found a freedom that um that most people don't get to feel yeah because i i understand now that um the verse that talks about you know um his grace is sufficient for me and um, how in my infirmities I can, you know, glory in God or whatever, where I'm not, I just butchered that. But I understand that completely now because I'll be honest, had I not gone through what I did, I don't think I ever had this freedom in my life. Right. right. You know, 
So yeah. when my world fell apart, I felt like it was the worst thing in the world. Yeah. But it was actually the, the best. best thing that could have ever happened to me. Yeah. And yes, I lost That's... a lot from yeah. it, but I've gained so much more too. Yeah. And that's pretty scriptural too. I mean, in in weakness we find strength, and yes. and uh, it's not this not this. It, we, God doesn't play by the same rules as the world does. Correct. Isn't and, that great? Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I always heard these people say, "I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic," and I would go, "Oh, give me a break." You know, it's like, yes. How can yeah. you be grateful for that? But then it dawned on me one day. It's like I I get to live a life today that that I think is what Scripture promises. And if I didn't have this disease, I probably never would have found it. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends who are miserable in life who haven't yeah. gone through the addiction like I that I know of. Yeah. Um, but but also they haven't they they don't have the joy in their life like yeah. I have, but because they're they're still bound to legalism and some other stuff yeah. in their in their life, you know. And so, you know, I'm I'm thankful. Um, I'm thankful for what I've gone through. I'm thankful for men like you who are brave enough not to hide anymore and will share their story so that like guys who are listening to us right now who might be, I, I mean, there's many ministers that listen to this that might be sitting there living with something that they're afraid they can't, they can't yeah. share with someone. Yeah. But, but if they don't, it's going to destroy. Yeah. That's more secrets, than what they realize, you know, because secrets it, are deadly. Yeah, they are. And so uh, I want to make sure I put in the descriptions um, links to you, to uh, your podcasts, your websites, to your ministry out there. And I, I commend you for it because thank you. it's such a great thing. I wish it was something that I knew of when I was going through mine, because I remember being so lost. Yeah. And seeking, thank God for uh, a minister that was hundreds of miles away from me named Mike Collins that would embrace me and love me in spite of me and showed me Jesus with skin on and, and walked yeah. this journey through me, even when I betrayed him and fell and relapsed. He was still there. Yep. You know? And so... Um, and I want to thank you for being on our show today. Uh, and as we, as we close off, is there any last words you'd like to maybe say to someone out there that's listening that might really need, uh, what we're talking about today? Yeah, enough. I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story. I know that, um, that, um, it enriches me as much as it might enrich somebody else. But I, if there is someone out there hurting, um, and you're wondering what's going on, um, find a 12-step group of some kind and be, and just, just walk in and listen. And, um, and you're going to hear some things. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's say it depends on what you're struggling with, but we have 12-step meetings that have um, every kind of addiction in it, and it doesn't matter. It's the same language. It's, yep. you know, we're all struggling with the same thing. We're all in hiding. And 12-step uh, places is... 12-step groups are a place you can come out of hiding and you can be yourself and you'll be loved and welcomed and, and accepted, which is what yeah. we're all really looking for. Yeah. Well, again, I thank you so much for being here. And to my listeners, until next time, just keep being intentional. We'll see you next Thanks, week. Thanks, Michael. God bless. Thank you.